tell me about your call to ministry. Have you been asked that question yet? You should have been. This is a question you should be prepared to answer, both on your way into seminary, on your way out of seminary, and while you are here. Tell me about your call to ministry. You will be asked to write papers about this. How many people have written a paper? Tell me about your call to ministry. The rest of you, it's next, next semester, probably. And after seminary, most of the transitions, most of the interviews into whatever happens next will involve that question. For those of you that will sit before a board of ordained ministry or a church committee or a missions board, um, you should know in advance. One of the questions you can get right. Tell me about your call to ministry. (laughs) And here's the thing about call stories. Everybody wants a good one. Like something with a burning bush in it, or a fleece that gets wet when it's dry, or that stays dry when it's wet, or maybe a net so full of fish that the boat begins to sink. What is your call to ministry? If you tell your story a certain way, it may kind of have the feel of a superhero origin story about it. When somehow in your ordinary human weakness, you found out there was some special gift you were being given, maybe like a toddler who lifted a car over his head, or you got bit by a radioactive spider, or you were a reclusive billionaire with a deep-seated quest for justice. No? These are not calls to ministry, by the way. (laughs) But they're stories of ordinary people who discovered something extraordinary about themselves and their call in the world. And maybe you've discovered something and thought, maybe God has given me this gift to share in his work, the work that he has for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Tell me about your call to ministry. Uh, Pastor Douglas Hoagland tells a story of a young man named Marty. Marty, he says, was a brilliant young man on the fast track to becoming a lawyer. His father was a coal miner who scraped together just enough money to send Marty off to law school. No soot-stained hands for his son. While in law school, the boy was an excellent student. He possessed an excellent and superior mind so much that he earned the nickname The Philosopher. But reason wasn't enough for him. Law and philosophy could not satisfy him. Marty's heart and mind longed and hungered for more than just reason. And then on a a hot summer July 2nd, traveling on the way back home from law school, a terrifying event changed his life and altered the course of not only his history, but the world's history. Black clouds gathered in the sky, rain pelted the ground, and a horrific thunderstorm enveloped him. And he realized that he was walking out in the open, without any shelter, utterly exposed and vulnerable to the storm. When suddenly a jagged dagger of lightning stabbed the ground right beside him, the blast blew him off his feet. And in that instant, he cried out to heaven, save me and I will become a monk. And 15 days later, Martin Luther kept his promise. He left law school. He became a monk. His father was furious. All that money spent on law school was wasted. Some of you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Martin Luther respected, he revered, he, he even feared his father. 
Yet the power of that lightning, the power of that moment, made him revere his heavenly father even more. And that was the start of not just something in the life of Martin Luther, it was the start of the Protestant Reformation. It began with lightning. It began with a sense of both awe and fear. It began with a need to plead with God when he was helpless, a need to serve a God powerful enough to show up in a difficult and desperate situation. Tell me about your call to ministry. I mean, a good call story is a must, not just for a vocation of ministry paper, an ordination interview, or a job interview before your first ministry. It's actually one of the things that will sustain you in ministry. It's like having a, a good story in a marriage of how you met or fell in love, a story that helps to sustain a memory of early feelings for years, even after the butterflies have worn off. A good call story is a good thing to have, and nobody has a better one than Isaiah. I don't know whether it's to say it's appropriate or ironic that Isaiah sees God in the temple. I mean, this is the place where day after day, lamps are filled with oil, incense is burned, animals are sacrificed, words of life and death and atonement and holiness are spoken. Every day, people have come to this temple and gone through these motions, assuming God is real and present and forgiving of their sins. And on every other day, this is an unseen reality. Don't you know that some people have shown up to this place of worship just going through the motions? Not even sure God is listening. Not even sure he's there, but knowing it's just something they're supposed to do. Plenty of us have, plenty of us have done that from time to time. But today, of all days, Isaiah's day, somehow a, a curtain is pulled back between what is seen and unseen. And Isaiah gets to see the reality of what people have been counting on in worship all these years. He gets to see the Lord. And he, like, like Luther, he suddenly is shocked. He faces an experience that knocks him down and changes his life forever, an experience of both fear and awe. And that vision that he receives, it's so grand, it's so awe-inspiring, that really he does a pretty terrible job of communicating it to us. See, words break down when you try to describe something like this experience. There's no good language to describe what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord. Have you ever tried? Have you ever met with God and then tried to tell someone else about it? Doesn't sound very good coming out of your mouth. How can one describe a God so big, so overwhelming, so grand? How do you describe God? Isaiah starts with an audacious claim, I saw the Lord. But when he gets around to the details, what has he got for us? And, and the hem of his, his robe, the, the bottom of his garment, the little piece that dragged the floor, it filled up the whole temple. It filled the biggest building that humans could construct at the time. Really, Isaiah? You saw the Lord and that's what you've got for us? The hem. The little piece at the bottom, did you not think to look up? It's sort of like, like admiring the pebbles around the base of Mount Everest, because you're just too small. 
You're too nearsighted. You're too far down to even imagine gazing up at the glory of the peak. The hem. That's all Isaiah's got for us. That's all he has words to describe of God's infinite majesty, just the hem of his robe. And then all around him, unearthly creatures hover, each of them with six wings, whirring all the while from their lips, pouring forth in surround sound this glorious song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You sang it already today. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a soundtrack for all of creation throughout time. The song, the song is so beautiful. It's so perfectly formed that we have literally never been able to improve upon it. So around the world, Christians hear this thundering song of the seraphim every week. In liturgical lingo, we call it the sanctus, the part of the communion liturgy where we all join our voices together to say with the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. And for centuries, from the earliest days of the church, Christians have joined their voices in this song, joining with seraphim, literally the fiery ones, hoping to catch fire ourselves for the presence of God. That perfect song of praise is still in our worship today. And their song is so powerful that it, it seems to send these waves that shake the doorposts and the foundations of the temple. And it sends a shudder through Isaiah too. Smoke obscures the temple and it, it fills him with fear and awe and trembling because Isaiah knows that this means that the Lord has come. And his reaction, well, it's interesting. Maybe he opened his lips to start to join in on the song and then realized that these lips, they weren't worthy to praise. For some reason, the holiness of God often makes us acutely aware of the state of our own being. I'll tell you that in my years in pastoral ministry, I don't think I ever had to bring up someone else's sin and confront them with it. Usually they brought it to me. Getting in the presence of a holy God brought it up in their mind, in their heart, and they began to look at themselves because of times of worship, because of times of encountering God. Woe is me, Isaiah says. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and not just me all of us. I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Worship brings us into the light of a holy God and makes us realize that God has business to do with us, business that only God can take care of. After the wow always comes, whoa. Thankfully, God is up for the task. That's why our worship services begin with praise, but turn to confession. God's searing searchlight of holiness exposes any darkness in us. Why is that? Is it so God can shame us? No, it's because he loves us. Because he wants us close to him, so he can cleanse us and claim us. If God reveals any spots of uncleanness in your own life, it is out of a desire and love to have you wholeheartedly with him, an undivided heart.
And one of these fiery ones flies to Isaiah with a live coal from the altar. Imagine that in your vision. Holds it out with a pair of tongs and touches Isaiah's lips. The very part of himself identified as unholy. The very part he will need for his call as a prophet to be completely clean and dedicated to God. And then they declare that Isaiah's sin has been blotted out, atoned for. Notice that God never says that Isaiah's sin is no big deal. He just says he's taken care of it, burned it away. That God's holiness has taken care of Isaiah's unholiness. And once, once the Lord removes the sin from the prophet's life, God is ready to put those lips into service. Whom shall I send, the Lord asks. Here I am, Isaiah says, maybe without thinking, he raises his hand. Here I am, send me. And send him, the Lord does. Now that is a call story. Imagine Isaiah's vocation to ministry paper. Pretty sure he got an A on that one. Imagine a committee questioning him, tell us about your call to ministry, and hearing this story, their mouths dropping open at the glory and majesty that he's seen. This story of encounter with God has been so formative for people of faith throughout the years that we have basically patterned much of our own worship after what Isaiah does and experiences. Following the example of Isaiah, we often follow these same steps in worship ourselves, praise, confession, pardon, response. We are sent at the end as we raise our hands to serve the God who we stand in awe and fear of, but who cleanses and calls. Maybe we've been hoping that our encounter, our even going through the motions sometimes, will lead us to a place where we can say with Isaiah, I saw the Lord. I saw him. The only problem is that the story doesn't end there. Lots of people do. The lectionary stops there, tells us that this passage is Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. It ends with, here I am, send me. It ends on the word me. Think about that. Most sermons end here. They end at verse 8. Here I am, send me. On sermoncentral.com, don't tell me you've never looked before, there are 109 sermons posted for Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. They all end with, here I am, send me. How many do you think claim to go all the way to the end of the chapter, to verse 13? How many sermons do you think claim that as their text? Only 15. But I looked at them, and it's really only one. I can't say that I blame them. I mean, what comes after here I am, send me, is much harder to swallow. I'm kind of wishing that I had followed those 109 sermons and could just stop here. We could move on happily. What follows, verse 8, is not fun to preach about. For Isaiah, it wasn't fun to live out either. The problem with here I am, send me, and stopping there is it's not the end of the story. Once you are called into ministry, you have to go into ministry. And that, that's a tough story, especially for Isaiah. Here was the message that God called him deliver, to deliver, beginning with verse 9. Here I am, send me, he said, and here's what he got. Go and say to this people, keep listening but do not comprehend. 
Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. How is that for a calling? Go and speak to these people who will reject your words. They will not hear you. And your words will actually make it even harder for them to hear. Your job is to stop them from hearing. Your very presence among them will cause them to reject God's message. I don't know that Isaiah would include this in his nicely gift-wrapped call story for his paper or his interviews. And, and now instead of saying, here I am with his hand up, I, I see him a little more hesitant. Instead, he echoes words of psalms of lament by saying, how long, O Lord? It's as if he's just volunteered for ordination and applied for retirement in the same sitting. <laughs> how long? How long do I have to do that? How quickly can this be over? And I've only just started. And the answer to how long is even more discouraging because God predicts and proclaims that it will be for the long haul, that the season of Isaiah's ministry on earth will be one where people reject God over and over, where their land, their temple, their people are destroyed with only a tiny seed of hope left over in verse 13. Who wants to preach about that? Not me. Isaiah follows God's call, and by that, God follows up. And he clarifies for him that this prophet's ministry will be challenging, that it will be discouraging, and that it will be seemingly fruitless throughout his lifetime. Isaiah will not see with his eyes the end of this discouraging ministry. How about you? Would you sign up for that? How would you respond if the Lord didn't promise a ministry overflowing with visible fruit? If God called you to go and talk about your faith to a neighbor or family member who you knew would ridicule you, would you go? God called you to pastor a church that you knew would refuse to listen to you, would you go? God called you to a mission field for a lifetime when you knew that there would not be one single convert. Would you go? How long, Lord? How long do I have to do that? If Isaiah had known how hard how the call would be, would he have raised his hand? Would he have been so positive and enthusiastic, raising his hand before even thinking, oops, send me, if he had known what the Lord was calling him to do? Dr. David Geertsen, who many of you know here on campus as one of the most amazing preachers on Asbury's campus, was years ago the president of Taylor University. He says that one of the hardest tasks he had to undertake um, when he was president of that school came one evening when a phone call awoke him from sleep. It was the campus security with the tragic news that a freshman student had committed suicide. And as the president of the school, he took on the responsibility to call her parents and let them know. First, though, he tracked down their pastor, contacted him, placed that phone call requesting that the pastor go to the parents' home to be with them when he called to deliver the news. 
He says there was a pause on the other end of the line, and finally the pastor responded, I did not sign up for this, and the phone went dead. Fortunately, Dr. Geyerson says he was able to reach the county sheriff in the family's hometown, who was a member of the Christian Police Officers Fellowship. And when he called, this man considered willingly that this was exactly what he had signed up for. He agreed to go and be with the family when the hard call of the bad news came. I didn't sign up for that. What did you sign up for? Really, would you raise your hand for that? There will be moments in ministry where you will want to say, I did not sign up for this, and you will want to hang up the phone. Isaiah must have felt the same thing over and over again in his own ministry. He didn't know what he signed up for, except he wasn't calling to tell a people that someone else had died. He was proclaiming that God's people were themselves in the midst of committing spiritual and national suicide. That they were heading towards self-imposed total destruction and that the death of their nation would be on their own hands. What terrible news to deliver. Don't you think he wanted to edit that document a little bit before he proclaimed it? No wonder no one wanted to listen when he proclaimed that sermon. You and I have no idea what we've signed up for. God doesn't send that memo ahead of time. What are we really signing up for in ministry? Should we go if church attendance is on the decline? Should we go if persecution of Christian missionaries is on the rise around the world? Should we go if Christian counselors are under scrutiny if denominations are unstable at best? Should we go if ministry, as everyone has been doing it for generations, is no longer working? I almost called the registrar's office this morning just to let them know to have an extra stack of drop cards after this sermon. <laughs> Thought maybe this wasn't the most encouraging call to ministry story. This is what happens when you preach past verse 8. But I didn't call because I remembered. I remembered that Isaiah's second thoughts come when he looked at himself and says, woe is me. His second thoughts come when he, he looks at an unwelcome ministry and says, how long, O oh Lord? But his first thoughts, his first thoughts make him go anyway. His best thoughts come when his eyes are focused on the vision that God gave him to sustain him in ministry. I saw the Lord. That's all he needed. In the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, he says, the real king. And just the tiny hem of his garment filled up our entire place, our little bitty worship. He overwhelmed it. I remembered that what God wants to fulfill our vision is not our weakness or the difficulties of ministry. What he wants us to keep in our vision is himself. I remembered that Isaiah wasn't the only one to raise his hand and go on this difficult mission. I remembered that in Isaiah chapter 59, there's a, a similar call, a kind of who will go for us moment. Here's what we hear in verse 15. The Lord saw and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. 
So his own arm brought him victory and his righteousness upheld him. I remember that when the Lord once again asked who will go for us, that he immediately raised his own hand in response. I remembered how he took on the task described in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Who raised their hand for that? Not Isaiah. God himself. Ministry will be hard. There will be things you didn't sign up for. But Jesus has already done the hardest work. He's done the impossible work before you ever got a chance to raise your hand. I remember that God didn't ask anything of Isaiah that he had not already signed up for himself and that he assigned himself the hardest assignment of coming to earth to deliver the impossible message that no one wanted to hear so that the hem of the robe that Isaiah saw filling the temple, not even being able to see the person behind it, would become the hem of a garment so accessible that the lowest person in the crowd could reach and touch and receive the healing and restoring power of Christ. I felt bad for Isaiah because his generation wouldn't listen to him. They never did. And then I remembered, I hear him. You do too. I am reading Isaiah's words right here, millennia later. While his words never changed the hearts of his own generation, they changed mine. They still are. I remembered that God is in it for the long game to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, not, not to achieve any measure of success that we have in a single ministry or a single lifetime. Isaiah's call story goes way beyond verse 8, and I'm glad it does. Do you want a good call story? A powerful one? Maybe you didn't get blown off your feet by lightning on your way to seminary and promised God you'd become a monk, thank God. Maybe you feel like when somebody asks you, tell me about your call to ministry, it's just, it's missing some element, some sort of wonderful burning bush dramatic quality. But I hope you'll remember that of all the amazing things Isaiah saw, the first sentence was always the most powerful. It was actually the thing that sustained him for a lifetime when no one wanted to listen. I saw the Lord. Isaiah said it, and he could have just stopped there. That is all you need. I saw the Lord, and it's enough to make anyone fall on their face, to ask for God's purifying touch of holiness to their lips, and to volunteer before they ever know what they signed up for to go wherever he will send them. I saw the Lord, and that's, that's all that matters, friends. That call story is not finished and over and submitted and graded in a class, it's still happening to you now. If you didn't come to seminary to see anything else, please tell me you came to see the Lord here. You need it. You need him. You need to lock eyes, even if it's with the tiniest thread that you can even see and take in. It can sustain you for a lifetime. Your own worthiness can't. The success out there, you can't count on that. But just the hymn, just the
the tiniest piece, even the thread at the bottom of his garment, even just a taste of the bread and cup. Amen.